1: Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. CTmobile.com. mobilecom A lot of balls in the air for financial markets right now. We're going to talk about how to manage the turbulence and where stocks are headed. I'm Andy Gersher, and this is Gains. All right, let's bring on Jack Ablin, Chief Investment Officer at Crescent Capital here in Chicago. Jack, always great to have you on the Gains Podcast. Thanks, Andy. It was great to be invited. Let's first of all, Jack, start with, um, you know, we've just cleared earnings season, uh, pretty decent results, and then we also got forward guidance. So what was your takeaway from uh, this this most recent uh, earnings season, what does it tell you about the market, and most more importantly, also your takeaway from that forward guidance
2: sure so um, yeah, I, you know we we came out of uh, q two earnings season down about five percent or so year over year, which was slightly better than the six and a half to seven percent that analysts had anticipated going into the quarter. Um, and uh, guidance, uh, depending on you know who you are is is mixed. But um, you know retailers still struggling a little bit. I think they see uh, uh, problems ahead as uh, uh, households start to struggle with maybe a little bit of debt. Remember, uh, with mortgage rates where they are, uh, you know, the home is no longer that ATM that you could just refinance and cash out. Uh, so I think that's uh, a bit of a challenge on the retail side uh but but generally guidance has been pretty favorable energy prices certainly um uh, starting to push higher and that um uh, that that helps that sector the energy sector along um you know for the next couple quarters
1: you mentioned energy prices you're actually in the in the middle of the the action being in florida what's your takeaway from energy we're starting to see it perk up a bit and then also you know you have a pretty substantial storm in your neck of the woods ahead of a very busy uh, holiday weekend. So thoughts on on the energy complex?
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, we're seeing uh, energy prices higher, uh, largely on uh, restricted supply. So really, if you look at the You know, a couple of big producers, most notably Saudi Arabia and Russia, really scaling back, trying to get energy prices uh, squared away. Uh, We also had, um, you know, had pretty much run down the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So and that was last year. So, you know, I think perhaps uh, U.S. is trying to maybe add a little bit to that. Uh, and then, interestingly, you have domestic producers really aren't ramping up production. In fact, it's it's really funny. If you look at the number of rigs in production, it's really consistent with roughly a $40 barrel of oil, oil not an $80 barrel of oil. So that suggests to me that a lot of the domestic produ- producers weren't really convinced that oil prices were going to stay higher for that much longer.
1: And then as far as the... Um... Tech sector, you know, we we saw banner earnings from chipmaker NVIDIA. Actually, by the way, the taping of this, we had a pretty, the NASDAQ had a pretty decent day, uh, climbed more than 1%. Seems like investors are flocking back to tech stocks. In the final days of August, which had been kind of a, a, a rough month, you know, we had uh, Meta, Tesla, Apple, Microsoft, and the likes follow NVIDIA higher today. What's your feeling about the tech space? You know, there's also been a ton of talk about the so-called AI trade. So just thoughts on tech and, and the AI trade.
2: Yeah, um, really, I think the uh, NVIDIA um, results last week was really a test of the AI trade. I mean, there certainly, you know, was a lot of enthusiasm going into AI and expectations were running pretty high. Remember, this is a company that was up something like close to 300% for the year. Um, and so what more could they do on an earnings front uh, that could really um, wow investors? And yet, lo and behold, they did. I think they had, uh, you know, hundred. A couple of hundred percent uh, outperformance on earnings, um, so it was remarkable. Um, but you know, we'll see. I think that uh, there a lot of the uh, tech companies took a breather from that August high when uh, we saw interest rates rise a little bit uh, in the uh, in the tenure. Uh, but that has now come back a little bit with uh, you know China not quite as strong as. Uh, everyone had anticipated, um, so you know we'll just see how that plays out. I think the other catalyst today was this, uh, you know, regulatory uh, uh, moving forward, the regulatory hurdle that was was passed uh, to move toward these uh, a Bitcoin ETF. And yeah, so that, a lot of the cryptocurrencies rallied.
1: Yeah, that uh, that there was a court decision that you're speaking to that could pave the way. Ah, uh, for a Bitcoin ETF that sent crypto at large higher. I, I mean, last look at Bitcoin it was up like eight or nine percent, uh, and and at, at some points today even higher. So that that also bringing a little something behind the rally in tech today. Um, you also, uh, you know, Fed policy. We just cleared Jackson Hole last week. Kind of investors trying to get a, a feel for how the Fed is going to continue to attack inflation. What was your takeaway from Jackson Hole and Jay Powell and what he said?
2: Yeah, Jay was actually uh, pretty optimistic uh, when looking at the economy and, and, Trends in inflation. I was actually pretty surprised. So that was taken away as good news. I think that um, investors are now thinking perhaps rather than raising rates, they may hold rates longer. I think that's a different mindset among uh, Fed governors. So I think if uh, people do feel that this is the top on rates, uh, or perhaps one more, um, I think that's a good sign. Um, Also, remarkably, over the last probably you know month and a half or so has been this <laughs> remarkable strength in the dollar. Um, that was something that certainly surprised us. We had expected, once the Fed uh, action was largely behind us, that the dollar would decline as perhaps the ECB and other central banks uh, continue to to ratchet their rates higher relative to the US. Uh, that hadn't happened. Uh, and I think a lot of it was owing to the fact that you know, U.S. government spent a lot of money to support the economy during COVID. Uh, we've got the Inflation Reduction Act, we've got an infrastructure bill, we've got a lot of spending that's really keeping our economy moving higher. Uh, and you know, juxtapose that to disappointments in China, and of course, uh, China's you know one of the biggest customers of Germany and and other parts of Europe and France. Uh, so I think that's kind of weighing down a lot of the developed world in particular, uh, and then making at least by comparison the U.S. look that much better.
1: You, you mentioned the dollar. Um, a lot of times we talk about international stocks. I've had I've talked to several people who are kind of bullish on international stocks. Uh, A stronger dollar might not necessarily play so well for that. Uh, Wanted to get your takeaway on international stocks and how the dollar plays into that. And explain to uh, to the gains listener as well.
2: Sure. Well, really, when you own—if you're a U.S. investor owning an international uh, stock—you're really making two bets. You're making a bet on the 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 foreign market, but you're also betting that that foreign currency, which in which your holdings are denominated, will rally against the dollar. So, really, uh, in today's environment, you know, it sets up for really two ways to win. Uh, You know, we we started the year pretty optimistic on international because. International equities were certainly trading at a big valuation discount to the dollar. And most major currencies were trading at a valuation discount to the dollar as well. Uh, With the euro, for example, you know, probably 20 percent cheap to the dollar. Uh, The pound, you know, within 5 percent, maybe slightly undervalued to the dollar. And the Japanese yen just table poundingly cheap. So all we really needed was a valuation to either align itself or some of these currencies to align themselves. we We sort of looked at it as two ways to win. Well, uh, that hasn't happened yet this year. We've had the u s has had a lot of momentum uh, with the the s and p up you know close to twenty percent. Uh, the dollar now up, I think two percent in the last month, uh, probably eight or nine percent for the year. Um, and so, yeah, eventually that will reverse and the international stock should take the lead. But right now, momentum is in U.S.'s favor.
1: Are, are you thinking about dabbling into international more? And then when we talk international, you also have more of the emerging markets. Uh, you know, we've talked in the past about uh, iShares emerging market ETF, EEM. Just wanted to get your take on emerging markets and and when do you think that turnaround you 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 did say that there may be some potential weakness for uh, the dollar that hasn't shown so far I mean where are you with that trade
2: yeah so we're nowhere right now with that trade we're still waiting uh, and I would love to see for example the dollars 50 day moving average drop below its 200 day moving average we're just not there yet um, the, You know if that were the case then I think that would at least um, be the catalyst, perhaps, for shifting into international equities. When it comes to emerging, however, uh, I'm still a little bit cautious there, just fundamentally, because we have to keep in mind that China represents about a quarter of that index, and this is a, an economy that is really starting to move in reverse. It seems like they perhaps exaggerated their growth to the upside with the help of um, – Uh, a lot of debt uh, and infrastructure building and residential construction, and now that's beginning to reverse. And let me put it in perspective for you. At the peak of our housing bubble in 2007, housing investments represented, uh, residential investments represented about 6.5% of GDP. Uh, Currently, uh, China's residential investments as percentage of GDP is over 10%. And that's starting to roll over. So I don't expect a financial crisis because most of the debt is held backstop by the government. Uh, But I do expect some massive uh, economic headwinds for what is the largest component of the emerging market index.
1: A lot of talk about a recession over, you know, throughout the whole year. Uh, and things were looking a little bit better, and then we've gotten other indications that, you know, maybe there's some concern. Um, are you team recession, or are you team soft landing? Where are you in that uh, that discussion that so many people yeah, are having now?
2: Yeah, I, I think we've softened our stance. We were team recession. We've softened our stance largely because uh, – you know, a lot of the relative strength in the U.S. Uh, I think we will see some recessions overseas. Um, you now, that said, uh, we had some uh, uh, job opening data that was released uh, earlier today on, on Tuesday uh, that showed fewer openings. Um, we also have a wall of debt that needs to be refi- refinanced. I just did a study for our uh, internal advisors to show the amount of debt, uh, we have nearly a trillion dollars of high-yield debt coming due over the next five years. On average, the, that debt is is held at roughly a coupon rate of around 5 to 5.5%, and that has to go to about 8.5% on average. So you can see a lot of companies are going to have to face a three-percentage-point increase in their debt payments, um, and, uh, you know, that, that's going to be a struggle. Now, the good news is it, it's filtered over the next five years. It's not something that happens this year. Uh, but it is, a, you know, an additional headwind. I, I think a lot of these headwinds that the U.S. is facing, especially with respect to higher rates, probably dissipated, and I think that it won't, re- you know, result in a downwards you know, crash type of thing. I think it's just a steady headwind over the next few years.
1: You talk about debt. Consumers are straddled with a ton of it. You know, I'm also thinking about debt held in the commercial real estate space. Downtowns are empty across this country. I see it firsthand on LaSalle Street and in the loop in downtown Chicago. How are these uh, playing into it as well, both uh, from consumer debt to you know, commercial real estate and and some of the issues we're seeing in the downtown areas.
2: Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, uh, Andy. uh, You hit the nail on the head in terms of, you know, the fundamental problems with uh, downtown office in in a lot of the downtown business districts, particularly, uh, you know, San Francisco, Chicago, uh, certainly other markets. I will say, uh, interestingly, uh New York, which really has a shortage of housing, has designated a block in uh midtown Manhattan. They're gonna convert from office to apartment. I don't know how they're gonna do it. I don't know what if the if the city is supported how the city's supporting that. Uh but that's one of the things that perhaps will start to move that ball in the right direction. But Meanwhile, you're absolutely right. You know, it's, it's funny. Uh, if you have an apartment, you could probably lower the rent enough to start attracting tenants. That doesn't necessarily work for office just because the amount of investment it takes to build out an office and get the right space and all that stuff, it's just a very, very difficult task. And then the other thing is to convert an office building it to anything else is really difficult, too.
1: Well, you know, they're they're trying that same kind of concept that you were talking about in Chicago, or on Chicago's LaSalle Street. In fact, they're talking about, you know, that conversion of off- office space to residential. The unfortunate thing is there was a bankruptcy with one of the groups that was kind of involved in this, so I don't okay. know where that that's going to stand. And plus, uh, that conversion of those old-school LaSalle Street buildings hey you've worked down downtown mm-hmm. in, in Chicago you know in the loop and on LaSalle Street you've been in the banking industry and and in this stuff for a long long time so uh it'll be interesting to see how they're able to address that because that that is a big overhang that a lot of people just don't discuss either
2: yeah i mean that's it i you know i worked in uh, at bmo for many years harris bank bmo building on, uh, you know, Clark and uh, and Monroe, LaSalle and Monroe, for years. And uh, it was a pretty tired building when I worked there. I can't imagine how it would be as an apartment building. Uh, certainly wouldn't be, based on its current state, I, it wouldn't be luxury.
1: Yeah. Um, all right. Hey, be sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I've been told that's podcast gold. Appreciate the solid there. And as always, subscribe and turn on those notifications so you know when a new Gains episode drops. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Jack Ablin. We'll get some ideas from him, continue our discussion. We'll be right back with Jack after the break.
0: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
1: Back with Jack Ablin, Chief Investment Officer at Crescent Capital here in Chicago. As we were heading into break, we were talking about uh, just a variety of things, overhangs and things uh, that we're watching that are you know have economic impact. We were talking about earnings season. Uh, one thing I wanted to bring up: you watch things, uh, Jack. You watch things like copper prices to get a sense of the economy. Uh, you will take a look at different indicators that maybe others don't look into, but can tell you a lot about where we are and and where the economy's at. What kind of things are you looking at right now? Uh, I mentioned copper. Uh, but, sure. Yeah, give me That'd your be, take on things.
2: Yeah, copper's a good one. What we do is look at the relationship between copper and gold, actually, because if you figure copper is a really a pro-cyclical metal, gold is pretty defensive. So uh, if If copper is going up and gold is going down, that would be a very good signal of a rebound. Uh, Unfortunately, it's really vice versa, that we're seeing now gold outperforming copper, at least over the last few weeks. Uh, That does suggest a slowing, um, a a retrenchment, and often uh, often predicts uh, a lower interest rate. So I think that, um, you know, I think the trend in the interest rate is probably lower, although we think long-term, the 10-year probably needs to be around 4%. Uh, but you know, 4:30 I think was a little bit out of hand to the upside in terms of yield.
1: I'm a big believer in the Dow theory. About a month ago, turned bullish as we've had these kind of pullbacks throughout the month. I've been deploying cash, looking at pullbacks right now, being part of a broader bull market. Where are you as far as? Uh, where you see the market going, especially in the second half of the year. I don't know if you follow the Dow theory, but it did turn bullish, which makes me, and I'm sure a lot of the gains listeners, really bullish on stocks. We see these pullbacks. We see them as an opportunity to, you know, buy the pullback in a broader bullish market. Where do you see the market right now?
2: Yeah, I I, I tend to agree with you, Andy. I think that all in all, you know, we, we have to kind of, remember that the S&P 500, that data, you know, that performance data, that valuation data, the PE uh, is really influenced by just a small handful of stocks. So, you know, everyone's heard of now the Magnificent Seven. Sounds like it would make a good movie title. But the point is that if you strip away those top seven stocks and just look at the average stock of the index, it's really only trading at around 17 times, which is pretty much what the 10 year triple B bond yield would suggest that multiples should be. Um, and so uh, all in all i'm I'm actually you know positive, I can't say I'm bullish, but I would say I'm positive on equities. I think it's certainly a place that you you want to be and hold. Uh, and I would hope I would expect uh, that the average stock in the market is now going to catch up with the mega cap stock. In the market, so we could see the S and P maybe go sideways on an index basis, but actually more and more names starting to participate, and I think that's what Dow Theory really tells us.
1: Yes, a lot more uh, companies joining the party. It's funny you mentioned that because one of the areas that I, I find interesting right now is the small caps, the Russell two thousand. A lot of great companies that need to play a little catch up to the broader market. Thoughts.
2: Yeah, so here uh, you have to be careful, uh, particularly the Russell 2000, because um, where I think the headwinds are going to hit, um, they're you know the the fundamental headwinds on interest rates and and, and higher uh, you know more difficult environment is really going to disproportionately hurt the lower quality companies. Now the Russell 2000, if you look at strip away you know what what share of the Russell 2000 is lower-quality companies, that's as much as 25%. Um, so if you're interested, to me, if you're interested in small caps, I would recommend instead looking at the S&P 600, which really has more of a quality bias. It's the smaller names but higher-quality companies. And generally, now, in a, in a certainly in a speculative rebound, the Russell 2000 is going to outperform the S&P 600. But at some point, you'll want to rotate into that S&P 600 to, Really, just hold on to those higher quality names, and I think, to me, that's one of the biggest themes for the rest of the year, and maybe even into next. Is quality, quality, quality. We want to make sure that you know the companies we own aren't going to be adversely impacted by having to refinance debt.
1: And when you say higher higher quality names, what what, what, are you, what kind of companies are you talking about? Give us give us a little taste.
2: Sure. So you know it would be i mean i can I can talk about it in the larger uh, cap sense, but think about dividend achievers. so these are companies that have had a long track record of uh, maintaining and growing their dividends over time. Uh, you can't do that through thick or thin if you if you've got a weak balance sheet and you have to refinance a heavy debt load, right? so these are companies proven over time, so you know three names I can think of off the top of my head would be Chevron which uh, certainly everybody knows, has a pretty generous dividend, but it's also been growing its dividend well in excess of the inflation rate over time. Uh, another one, you know, again, these aren't glamorous names, uh, Archer Daniels Midland uh, Farming Company, same thing, uh, maybe a 2% dividend, but it's been growing its dividend at 5 or 6% uh, per year on average. And then uh, McCormick, the spice company, same thing, uh, not a glamorous company, 2 to 3% dividend yield, but it's been consistently growing its dividend over the last few decades.
1: You mentioned CVX, Chevron, uh, the ticker on that is uh, CVX, Archers. CVX, yeah. D- yeah, and then Archers uh, Daniel, ADM, which ADM the Archers Daniel is Daniel the ticker, ADM. And give that ticker for McCormick Spices. MKC. MKC. So uh, CVX, ADM, and MKC are three of those kind of quality names that uh, Jack uh, finds attractive right now. As far as the individual investor, say they've, uh, you know, they're in the market, uh, maybe have a little dry powder, but there is a lot, we've talked about a lot of uncertainty, which is a good thing, I I believe, because I always like uh, climbing that so-called wall of worry. I know it's cliche, but, uh, you know, markets kind of, I like it, you know, in situations where markets can grind higher. I think that's the kind of situation we're in. But, you know, what's your take uh, or what's your advice for the individual investor here? Not quite sure what to do.
2: Yeah, well, I would just, you know, let's go back to basics. And and I try to, you know, create as much predictability in in an unpredictable market as possible. And the best way to do it is to really match your investments with the time horizon that you have. So, for example, you know, if you've got a pool of money and you need it in the next 60 days, keep it in a money market fund. Keep it in T-bills. If, on the other hand, maybe you have a three-year, you know, five-year time horizon, that's really meant for bonds. But if you have assets, if you've got cash that you know you don't have to touch for seven years or more, uh, then you can go ahead and put it away in a – portfolio and an index fund or a a strategy of equities and know that if you're, you know, odds are, if you look at that portfolio seven years from now, you have an over 90% chance that you've made a profit.
1: Well, that's an important thing, an important point about long-term investing. You know, the games listeners, we, we trade in and out of things. And we talk about that a lot, but um, also for that long-term wealth build yeah, I mean, you can just kind of pick up on this. You, you really can't bet against the stock market and, uh, you know, just building yourself a nice portfolio and you have that time horizon. Whew, that's a game changer financially. Explain.
2: It does. You know, if you look back to like 1979 and you just say, look, I'm just going to uh, take all of my income uh, and just spend it. Um, You know, that's fine. That's a decision that you make. But keep in mind, between 1979 and last year, uh, earnings, uh, you know, uh, paychecks, prices, everything is up about 350% cumulatively over that time. Uh, Hey, and that's great. But if you instead took money and put it into the S&P 500 in 1979, you know, it's up over 6,300%. Way advanced of uh, you know incomes and prices and so forth, and so if you think about just deferring a, a, an expenditure, uh, and I think we calculated if if in one thousand nine hundred and seventy nine you wanted to buy a hundred thousand dollar boat, well, if instead you took that one hundred thousand and put it in the s and p five hundred and then waited many years to, you know, 2022, that $100,000 boat would have cost you $13,000 in S&P dollars because that, that had grown so much more than the price of the boat over that time.
1: And it just shows you the wealth generator, the stock market is long term.
2: That's it. It's not, you know, I wish I could tell you I was a genius. I just, all I do is go with history and be patient.
1: Well, we've covered a lot of ground today. Jack, what's your takeaway from our discussion and, uh, you know, the key point you want to get across here?
2: First of all, everyone's bemoaning these higher interest rates, and, you know, that's, that's a problem if you're a borrower, and it's a problem if uh, uh, you, you know, have a, a business that you're trying to operate. I get it. But if you're an investor, we have now have an asset class that's really able to fight with both arms. Uh, The fact is the Federal Reserve had forced the bond market to fight with one arm tied behind its back for 14 or 15 years. And so now, at long last, the bond market is offered at fair value. You don't have to uh, rely exclusively on stocks if you don't want to. In fact, that that quote-unquote 60-40 portfolio where Uh, yields are now high enough to offer you some kind of diversification in the event something bad happens to stocks. Uh, We just haven't had that for 15 years. So I do think that investors need to take a second look at balancing uh, their stocks against bonds uh, and put a a, a pretty solid mix together. Finally, we have all of the asset classes working the way they should be. And, And we've just been distorted for a really long time.
1: Yeah, it's actually quite refreshing. Big thanks to Jack Ablin, Chief Investment Officer at Crescent Capital here in Chicago. Hey, be sure to subscribe, follow, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if that's an option for you, and as always, subscribe and turn on those notifications so you know when a new GAINS episode drops. We drop GAINS episodes on Wednesday mornings, and I look forward to seeing you then.